0: I'd like to share with you what I would consider tonight one of the most important messages that I'll ever try to give. Uh, it, that, that's very intimidating uh, to someone that wants to do uh, before the Lord what is always His best. And uh, I got I got an information that from one, from one of the tech guys says, you know, you hit a home run yesterday. I said, oh wow. He says, well, we'll see how you do tonight. <laughs> and I think, yeah, let's let's hope and pray that God will use this place in Scripture to inspire all of us. Well, as I say to you, this is an amazing place. Let me share with you why. It's kind of easy to remember, and it's easy to put together. I'm sure you're going to figure it out. Paul is writing to a group of people that he has never met. He's writing to a group of Gentiles who have not the background of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They haven't had the covenant of God given to them like the Jews have. And so now Paul wants to introduce himself to them and he wants to impress upon them who he is. And you know it well. I sure do. He doesn't want to impress upon them who he is so that they'll be impressed with him. He wants to impress upon him who he is so that they would understand and have a, a, a clearer picture of who Jesus Christ is. So he says to them, remember in chapter 1, verse 1, maybe this will start to fall into place for you. He tells them I'm a bond servant of Christ Jesus. I'm called as an apostle, and I am set apart for the gospel of God. That's his introduction, so that they might know who is this one who is writing to them these letters and who will one day stand before them, the wonderful Apostle Paul. He goes on to say, not only was he called, he says to them and to us, in verses 6 and 7, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. All who are beloved of God, whether you be in Rome, and let me add this to the scripture, no matter where you may be, called as saints. Then he said three times in verses 14, 15, and 16, I'm under obligation, I am eager to preach, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel that I'm about to preach to you, he says. And then he says in verse 17, the righteous person is the person who is going to live by faith. Then all of a sudden, as we saw, he stopped and he started talking to those who have rejected the Lord their God. They have no purpose to, to even want to reach out to know Him. And he warns them. He says to them, starting in chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all who are ungodly, all who are unrighteous, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He said to them clearly in verse 19, what was known about God, it's evident to you. You know about it. God made it evident to you, He said. And then with this sweeping statement of indictment in verse 20, He says this, since the creation of this world, now you've got to remember, he's talking to those who have completely rejected any idea of God. He says, since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. So that, he says at the end of verse 20, you who deny God, you are without excuse. Then he goes on to say, as we've studied in verses 24, 6, and 8, 24, 26, 28, he says, God will give you over to your different desires, your different lusts, your different sins. And ultimately, he said, you will get to the place, in verse 32, he says to them, that although you know the ordinances of God, you know that those who practice these things are worthy of death. Not just death to die, but death eternal He says, you not only do these things, but you give hearty approval to those who practice them. He nails them. And he looks over almost as if he went and saw a bunch of people that were going to church but had no relationship with God, but were self-righteous. And that's chapter 2 that we have just studied from verses 1 to verse 10. And he mentions to two groups of people, if you recall, remember with me, First group, verses 1 through 5. You people who say you have the truth, but you don't have the truth. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you too are without excuse. You who are looking smugly at those who, you say, well, at least I'm not like them. I'm better than them. Oh no, he says, you too are without excuse. He says in verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? His forbearance, his patience, not knowing the kindness of God will lead you to repentance. He is teaching to them what what I would love to teach to you, and that is we need to repent from our sin and fall in love with our Savior. And so he knocks down their idea of truth, saying there is but one set of rules. There is but one truth. And God has given it to us. And you cannot stand up smugly, looking down on others, thinking that you have the truth, when you don't. You too are without excuse, he says. And so what they say, then they, well, we at least do good things. Remember that was last week. And he said to them, no, you're, 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 you're doing good things that are of no value to you. Remember what it says, in verse 6, He will render to every man according to his deeds, but we learn from Scripture that our, our, our righteous deeds before God are like filthy, dark, filthy rags. They're of no value. And now he says, after he's knocked the pins out of those people as far as what is truth, and can you work your way to heaven... He then says to them, and what we will read tonight, it is marvelous. He says in verse 11, let's let's really start with verse 9, because he speaks to both Jew and Greek, and he speaks to those who do good and those who do not do good. Verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. The Jew first, also to the Greek. But there will also, verse 10, be honor, I mean glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now we get to the text, verse 11 to verse 16. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately, either accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And so what he says, and you've read it with me, he says, look, God's not partial. It's not the Jews that he is going to just look out for. It's not just the Gentiles. He's done it partial. He accepts all and every single one of them. And if you think it's your truth that's going to save you or you're doing good deeds, I want you to know this, he said. There's going to come a day that God is going to judge the secrets of our hearts. And none of us want to be judged on that. This is an amazing place in Scripture. Now, for the most part, it's not not something that is preached to those of us who trust and believe in Jesus Christ. This is not a, a message that tries to make you feel queasy about your faith or wondering, am I good enough? No, you're not. Just relax with that. (laughs) None of us are. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. And we all need a Savior. And so this isn't a a place to make you feel uncertain about that. It is a place, though, that might, should, as the Word of God always will do, to encourage you. It was after the first service yesterday that a, a wonderful gentleman. I, I I won't tell you who he is. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. But I love this man. I see him faithfully here all the time. And sometimes that's enough said. And I love this man. he came to me and, and he said something to me that I'm going to show you in a moment. That I, I it was just a throw in. It was just a part of the verse that I put on the end because it was the verse and I wanted to read it all. And everything else I thought was the purpose of the message. And it was the last four or five words that said, brought him to his knees that wanted to repent. And and that's the whole purpose of of why we study the Word of God, folks. It's so so that as we as believers hear the Word of God and it starts to minister to us, it helps us to grow, helps us to mature in our faith. But don't you dare feel that you can lose your salvation or that or that you might feel, oh, wow, am I doing enough? No, that's not the purpose of God's Word. His Son did everything for us. We have a marvelous Savior. Let's pray. Father, we just read the most, one of the most impressive places in the Word I've ever been in my life as all of this starts to flow together as i've studied it and i pray that everybody else has that sense i can see now exactly why paul is writing this so far i can i feel it i feel exactly what he is saying to these dear people he wants to introduce himself he wants to make himself so known by them that they feel comfortable when he tells them the difficult things in life he's begging i know he is he's begging for those people who just will sin and sin and sin and seem to have no regard for you, dear God, dear Father. He's begging for them to hear your voice and to turn with them. And now he's speaking to what I would consider the most difficult of groups, and that is those who are self-righteous. Feel like they have truth. Feel like they do enough. Compare themselves with others reaching them he has to tell them look God's going to judge the very secret of your heart do not be smug and the same repent not the same there is no partiality with God in the same and so Father I beg of you that you would allow this message to go as clear as possible I beg of you Father that you would move me aside so that I do not disturb what you want to say to every single one of us here tonight Father, may I, in the midst of this prayer, thank you for the people who come here on Sunday night. It's not easy, Father. They come to thank you for them. So, Father, would you please move me aside? Would you open up our, our eyes, our hearts, so that we might behold wonderful things from your life? Teach us, Father. I pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Let's take a look at the first word that just hits a smack in the face. Where it says in verse 11, there's no partiality with God. The word partiality is a long Greek word. Let me just spell it out to you. It's P-R-O-S-O-P-O-L-E-M-P-T-E-S. It simply means to give consideration to a person because of who they are or what they do. By the way, our, our justice system is set up upon this whole Whole, whole system like this the statue of justice is seen as a woman who is blindfolded with scales in her hands that signifies that she is unable to see who is standing before her, therefore she will not be tempted to be biased or unfair in judging that person this principle is taught throughout scriptures Old Testament as well as New, let me just read you a couple places because they fit together with this message Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10, 17. Marvelous. He is the great and mighty and awesome God who does not show partiality, nor take a bribe, nor take a bribe for the four words that. It touched this person's heart yesterday in the first service, and it was just a throw-in. I didn't even really want to read it. I had a dot, dot, and I could leave it out if I want to. But I figured, you know, I ought to read the whole whole verse. And God said to me after he came up, maybe, whatever." You know, I don't hear any voices. Don't get me wrong, but I I felt a sense of God saying to me, "Don't you compromise my word." Because I am going to touch the person through my word. It is my word that will not come back. Boy, you read it all. And I'll do with the people as I do with the people. And I was saying to myself, that's why I pray. God, move me aside. God, let me open up our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your law. I, that's the reason I prayed it. But, but I, I, it was practical yesterday morning when this man came to me with tears in his eyes, he said, y- your message put me to the the nth degree of wanting to repent." And so in Deuteronomy, we see that God is an awesome God that doesn't show partiality. But there's a great little story. You're in Romans, chapter 2. We have a moment. Let's turn back just a few pages to Acts, chapter 10. It's just the next book to the left. It's just back a couple pages. Hold your place in chapter 2, but... Peter, Peter is just amazing to me. And and he discovered this fact that God's not partial as as he had a vision when he was near Joppa and he went to Joppa to visit a man who was a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. In this scenario, chapter 10 of the book of Acts, Simon Peter was hungry. Verse 10, let's just start there. He became hungry and was desiring to eat while they were making preparations, Peter fell into a trance. And behold, the sky opened up, and a certain object, like a great sheet, came down, lowering by four corners to the ground. And there in it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Peter, arise, kill these. But Peter said in verse 14, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And again, the voice came to him a second time and said, "What God has cleansed, no longer consider it unholy." Happened three times. Well, let's jump down. So, this, these people come to visit Peter and they say, "You've been called. We've been we've been told to call you to the house of Cornelius to come visit him." So, verse um, 23. He invited them in, gave them lodging. On the next day, they arose, and he went with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. When he was in Caesarea, Cornelius was waiting for him and had called together his relatives and close friends. He had everybody there to hear what Peter was going to say. And when it came about verse 25 when it came about that peter entered cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him and peter very wisely raised him up saying stand up i'm just a man like you and as he talked with him he entered and found many people assembled and he said to them you yourselves verse 28 you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And then it says in verse 34, you can read the story if you wish, if you jump to verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said these words, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to God. That's the very crux of what we're going to say. Would you please turn back with me now to Romans chapter 2. Peter says, I understand now, certainly I understand now, God's not one to show partiality, which led Paul, I believe, to write here in verses 9, 10, and 11, this about Jew and Gentile, as we read a little while ago. Verse 9, the one who does evil, Jew as well as Greek, Will come tribulation and distress. Verse ten, glory, honor, and peace will come to everyone who does good. Jew first, Gentile as well. For God says in verse eleven, "There's no partiality with Him." In warning bosses to be considerate and fair with their with their workers, Paul says in Ephesians six nine, both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with Him. In other words, be careful how you treat others. Paul also says in Colossians 3.25, that the person who does wrong will receive the consequences of their wrong which they have done, and that without partiality. In other words, God's not partial. And so in verse 12 of this this place in Scripture, in in Romans chapter 2, Paul mentions two very distinct groups of sinners. Those who didn't have the opportunity to know God's law, meaning the Gentiles, and those who did, meaning the Jews. Of course, he's speaking to the law, which was given to the Jews, to Israel, through Moses. It's not that the Gentiles have no awareness of God, nor any, any... sense of right or wrong. No, no, just because they didn't have the law didn't mean that because we were already established as we just read a little while ago in chapter 1, verse 20 that since the creation of this world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. They are understood through what has been made so that everybody is without excuse. These people, Jew and Gentile alike, will be judged by God's law. In verse 12 we are told all who have sinned without the law are going to perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law are going to be judged by the law. The word perish is a very heavy, heavy word. It's A-P-O-L-L-U-M-I in the Greek. It it pertains to total destruction. It, it, It basically has to do with being ruined, no longer usable for its intended purpose. Do you know, let me stop here for a moment. Do you know your purpose in life? I do, I do. I know your purpose in life as well. Our purpose in life is no matter what it is we do, do it all for the honor of God. Do whatever you do to honor Him and to praise Him and to worship Him in and through your life, whether it's playing games with your children or or being in school, young people, or, or, or at work or at home. Honoring your wife or your husband. All that you do, you do to worship the Lord and give Him honor. That's our purpose in life. So he says this word perish takes away the very purpose of one's being. In other words, they're going to be cast away. Jesus uses the word to perish to speak to those who are thrown in hell. Some amazing words. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Don't fear those who can kill your body, but are unable to kill your soul. Don't fear them. Rather, he says, you fear the one who is able to destroy both your soul and your body in hell. Jesus makes it clear that hell is not a place of uh, of unconscious. Existence, rather as, as the Hindu Nirvana would preach or teach. No, no. Hell is a place of everlasting torment. It's a place of eternal death. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 42 and 50, Jesus Christ says, that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in verse 12, Paul teaches as clearly as possible that all lost Gentiles as well as all lost Jews alike will both surely perish and go there unless, unless they listen to God's warning. But listening and hearing isn't the only cure. We are going to learn from the rest of this. Paul is saying it's one thing to listen, it's a whole other thing to do what you've heard. In verse 13, Paul makes a clear statement of verse 12 by saying, It is not those, look, it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. That, that, that he's speaking mostly to the Jews that are there in Rome. It's not you who, who have heard the law that are, are most righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. That's Jew and Gentile alike. Now the Jewish people have, had heard the law recited on all kinds of sacred occasions. They, they had heard the law so much so that they concluded because they were a part of the covenant of God that they had heard all of these truths all their lives that there was a guarantee that they would go into the kingdom of God. That's not true. That's not what Paul is trying to tell these people. And that's not true for us, you know, through this world in which we live, especially here in the United States of America, we have all kinds of of influences towards Christianity. There is all kinds. There's Christian stations, there's Christian music, there's there's Christmas that we celebrate. Yes, I know the world is trying to take Christ out of Christmas. And then there's Easter, and yes, I know the world is trying to take Christ out of Easter. But there are myriads of people on this earth in the United States of America are much like these Jewish people who have heard the law recited and they think because they have heard it or they've been to church once in a while that they're guaranteed the kingdom of heaven. And Paul states in verse 13 the obvious. It is not those who hear the law of God who will be declared righteous but it is those who do the law. Now James chapter 1 verses 22 to 24 says it much better than I Let me read what James says concerning those who hear and those who do. James says in chapter 1 verse 22, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, they they make themselves think they're okay because they've heard it. No, he says in verse 23, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. That's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and then gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he is. I've had so many people tell me after a message, Pastor, your message moved me. It moved me. And I want to tell you right here and right now, I'm going to start coming to church more often. I'm going to start being participant in the church. I'll I'll start helping, and I will start giving. And I see them for a time, but then all of a sudden they're gone. Here's the rub: you don't have to come and tell me if God moves your heart. I'm not your judge nor will I be your jury. And I don't keep track on who comes. I don't. I have trouble remembering kids' names. How am I going to remember all of them (laughs) that come? Since I am not the judge, nor the jury, the person that we will have to do with is God, who will judge us, all of us and for our failure to to obey what we hear. It's a terrible thing. It almost proves that we don't believe or accept His truth and we don't become a doer of what we hear. Listen to what our Lord says. Read when you have time. This week, whenever, the Sermon on the Mount, just read it. Don't try to learn a lot don't don't go with any preconceived notions. Just Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. It's just kind of weird. But listen to what our Lord said. I believe he had this very thought in mind when he spoke in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Just listen to our Lord's wisdom. Listen to his words. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise person who built their house on the rock. The rains fell. The floods came. The winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. That's verses 24 and 25. Now listen to verse 26 and 27. He also says in verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, he will be like a foolish person who has built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed, it slammed against the house and it fell and great." was its fault. You see, there's a great truth in the, the passage that we are just reading in what our Lord said. There's a great truth for all of us to hear, to listen, but ultimately to obey. Both of these groups, verses 24 and 25, and verses 26 and 27, same thing. They all heard, some acted, some didn't. The wind, the rain, the flood, this, everything came against the one who acted upon the word of God, and it, its house did not fall. But the same wind, the same rain, the same floods came and slammed against the house of the one who heard but did not act on, on those words, and the house fell and great was his fall. Practical stuff. Two doers of God's law are those who come to Jesus Christ through faith. Do you know why we study the Bible here so diligently? Why we try, at least with all of our heart, to go word upon word, line upon line, and study through the Scriptures? It's all written in one beautiful verse. You might want to know, get to know it. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Let me read it to you. It says, The law has become our tutor. This, this has become our tutor tutor. You know what a tutor is, do you not? A tutor is a teacher. Someone who will teach. This Bible has become our tutor to lead us to what? To Christ. To lead us to Christ. The whole purpose of why we do as a church, why we so diligently try to study the Word of God is so as to lead you to Christ so that you might be Justify just as if I've never sinned through faith. Faith. It's very simple but powerful verse, Galatians 3.24. It's why we study God's most glorious word as we do here, so faithfully, to lead you and me to Christ, so that we might mature, so that we might grow, and so that we might, by the grace of God, become obedient to the word of God that we study here. Now let's close with verses 14, 15, and 16. We could close here, I think, but some might think verses 14 and 15 will give an idea that a non-believer can live a good enough life to get them into the kingdom of God. Because Paul writes, verse 14, when Gentiles, that means a non-believer, who do not have the law, yet they do instinctively the things of the law, these... The Gentiles, not having the law, they become a law unto themselves. Sounds pretty good. In that they show the work of the law, verse 15, written in their hearts, and their conscience bears witness. And their thoughts, alternately, do one of two things. Either accuse them, or defend them. Now, let me tell you what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that the Gentiles, who do not have the law, Although they keep the law, they're good. No, he is saying that they do some things that is required by the law. In other words, they display what might be called a civil act of virtue or kindness. All of us know people who don't go to church would have enough morals to take care of their own children. We have perhaps friends, some who are non-believers, who we'd rather do business with them than some believers. Sadly, we can say that who are upright in their business dealings, who who would refrain from stealing or killing anyone or anything. But what Paul is teaching is they don't obey the whole of the law, and their partial obedience reveals that there is a, yes, a certain sense in which the law was written in their hearts, in their conscience, he says. Now Paul has already made it abundantly clear in chapter 1, verse 20, that all people are under the judgment of God so much so that he, they are without excuse because they have clearly seen Him, clearly know who He is. But they have, verse 15, a conscience that bears witness. The word conscience is, is the key. It is S-U-N-E-I-D-E-S-I-S. It literally means to have knowledge of. It's like back in chapter 1, when those people knew better they knew better, but in verse thirty-two, they not only not only practiced these things that they, that they knew was going to cause them to go to death, eternal death. They they still did it. Not only did they do it, but they gave hearty approval to everybody else who did it with them. That's what he's talking about. The idea behind this word testifies to the fact that mankind has an instinctive, built-in sense of right and wrong. But in some cases, their conscience has run permanent. In John MacArthur's commentary, in this part of Scripture, it's a great example of something I've never heard about leprosy. And you might want to say, well, how does this fit in leprosy? Well, John MacArthur was writing about conscience, how some consciences will vary depending upon their sensitivity, whether they're obeyed or, or resisted. He said some years ago, I'm reading out of his, his book now, some years ago it was discovered that contrary to a long-held medical thinking, the gross disfiguration that is so common in lepers was not called, caused directly by the disease. No, what happens is, he goes on to write, that leprosy kind of desensitized the person's nerves that had leprosy. In other words, they couldn't feel their extremities or wherever their leprosy was running rampant upon the body. He says, therefore, unprotected by the warning signals of pain, the warning signals of pain, a leper would suffer cuts and burns and infections without even knowing that it infected their body. It would be worse and worse because they couldn't feel the pain. He says, in much the same way mankind's neglect of our conscience, of of knowing what is right and not doing it becomes insensitive and may eventually stop giving us warning signals about the wrongdoings of sin. Paul spoke of that. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 he talks about those who by the means of hypocrisy of lies seared their own conscience as with a branding iron And so in verse 16, Paul writes, On the day when, according to my gospel, God is going to judge the secrets of man through Christ Jesus. Paul is teaching here a major truth to those in Rome. He is teaching them that not only will there be coming someday a, a, a last judgment by God through his Son, Jesus Christ, The one that he says he is an apostle for. The one who he says he is preaching the gospel for. Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that day when God will judge the secret of each person's heart. Through his son. He is basically saying that we can't duck and hide. He was telling these self-righteous people. You know in your conscience you've done wrong. And you're trying to hide it. You can hide it all you want, but God knows. And one day, you will stand before Him and be judged by that. And I say to myself, please God, may that never be for me. All of us have skeletons within our closet of of secrets that we want to conceal from the scrutinies of others. But the point of this text is this, those very things which we seek to keep secret are going to come revealed before the throne of God one day. So what do we do? Do you want the secrets of your heart revealed before the judgment seat of God? Not me. Not me. This alone should cause anyone who is here searching for Jesus Christ to come to know Him and trust in Him as their Lord and Savior. Because Jesus has been on this earth to seek and to save those of us who are lost. And He not only saves those of us who come to Him, He will separate our sins. As it says in Psalms 103, verse 12, He will separate your sin as fast well as what? The East is from the West. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, He says, and I will remember your sins no more. I'm signed up for that. <laughs> I want that with all my heart. The last verse. Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen tells you that me, if you will seek me, God says, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I don't know what that means exactly. But I can tell you right now, the reason I believe I'm crying is that you heard tonight, with all of your heart, how to come to Christ. It's just a matter of asking Him to forgive you of your sin. It's just a matter of asking Him to make you into the person you want. He wanted you to be in the person. And for those of us who know Him, we don't ask have to ask over and over again. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What He's asking us to do is to be an example in this world. I'm convinced of it. He's asking us to be light in this darkened world. He's asking us to be salt, So that we might draw people to Christ. That's why we have church. Help you and me grow in our faith. So that collectively we can gather together... And collectively, we can do far more things than any one person can do. I love you folks more than life itself. I wish I could express it better in just three words, I love you. But I figure if I say it often enough, you'll believe me. Father in heaven, thank you for this night. How gracious of you, Lord, to have these people come out on a Sunday night. I sure would love to have a church, Father, that we can meet on Sunday morning, but not my will. Yours be done. So, Father, bless us as we become a church that catches the whole idea of hearing and then doing, being obedient. And thank you, Lord, that you're not partial. You will accept any and every one of us if we just come to you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.